Hello, 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 and welcome to Down to Book. I am your host for today, Burnsy, and stay with me as always. Johnson. Strawny. Jesse Owens. So today is the second episode of this appendix podcast, where I'll be guiding us through Marcus Zusak's 2005 release, The Book Thief. Um, if you've been listening at all to Train Pop Culture and the Getting to Know You series, you'll know that I've mentioned this book in there. So it must come as no surprise to the listeners at home that this would be my selection for Down to Book. Uh, the episode will again be split into two segments. We are going to start with a spoiler-free overview and our recommendations, which follow the same format as previous, whether it is a must-read, a session or a break book. And then we'll be going into a spoiler-filled, deeper commentary about how we felt about the book and our underlying feelings having finished it. But first, a bit of an introduction to the book itself. Say so this is uh, Marcus Zusak's The Book Thief. It was released in 2005. Uh, Marcus Zusak is an Australian author and thought this information might be interesting to you three guys having now finished the book. He's Australian. He was born in Sydney which is particularly relevant. His mother and father, his mother was German and his father was Austrian, which I thought was very interesting as well. Um, the book itself has won a plethora of awards. I think between 2006 and 2007, he won nine separate awards for this book, and most of them being best book that year from some different company or award. The one of particular note for me was that in 2007, it won the Prince Award, which is given purely on the basis of the quality of writing. It's nothing to do with sales or figures. It's purely just to do with the quality of the writing itself. It wasn't banned, but it has been challenged due to the themes and the nature of the content of the book. Um, it was an, an international bestseller. It's been translated into 63 languages and sold over 16 million copies which is pretty good going by uh, all standards. And from the back cover, just so you all have a bit of an understanding of the overview that you would get if you were using a, a physical paperback copy, we have the following. Here is a small fact. You are going to die. 1939, Nazi Germany. The country is holding its breath and death has never been busier. Liesel, a nine-year-old girl, is living with a foster family on Himmel Street. Her parents have been taken away to a concentration camp. Liesel steals books. This is her story and the story of inhabitants on the street when the bombs begin to fall. Some important information, this novel is narrated by death. It is a small story about a girl, an accordionist, some fanatical Germans, a Jewish fist fighter, and quite a lot of thievery. Another thing you should know, death will visit the book thief three times. Now, as the back of the book indicates, it's set in 1939, Nazi Germany, it's in a fictional town called Molsching, set predominantly on Himmel Street. Outside of the narrated death, you've got six sort of main characters. Liesel Memminger, the little girl who is the book thief, Hans Huberman and Rosa Huberman, who are the foster parents, Rudy Steiner, who is her best friend, Max Vandenberg, who is the Jewish fist fighter, and occasional instances of Ilsa Herman, who is the mayor's wife. The books in question are The Gravedigger's Handbook, 
the shoulder shrug and the whistler. And on that merry note, Zalmenches and Zalkans, what did you think? Before we head on, um, why was it um, controversial? Um, who, other, who other than neo-Nazis who don't want to be painted as the bad guys would try and get this book done? You've got to think, it's um, technically like Marcus Isaac's books, um, he earlier had been writing children's books and this was aimed at a young adult audience and the content was de- um, considered by some to be quite heavy. Um, the overrolling themes of loss and cruel fate and anger and upset. It was quite heavy um, in places and kind of the depiction of Nazi Germany from that perspective. It, it was, I say, it was never banned. Some, some challenges were made whether or not it should be kind of allowed in schools, I believe. Um, I don't think it, didn't, uh, it never okay. was um, but it is a young adult book, so when you, in context, like when you finish reading the book, I warned you all when I picked this. I don't think that any one of us would get through to the end of this book without crying, because it does hit hard in places. So I can sort of understand it, depending on what age range, kind of the the establishment, whether it's a, a children's library or a, a children like a school, then potentially yeah there may have been grounds for thinking it might have been a bit mature for certain audiences um but it was by no means actively banned mm. or anything it was just it, I think it was just yeah. challenged the themes and the nature of the yeah that makes a bit more sense because i was just thinking it was it's not exactly controversial it's it's like yes it those things did literally happen there's documented ever you know what i mean it's like you can't you know, so I was just checking because it just seemed a bit odd that someone would try and have a problem with the book. And it's like, well, if you've got a problem with the book, you've got a problem with history, and that's not the book's fault. <laughs> that's your own inability to accept reality. But yeah. yeah okay, so that's. I'm a bit light on facts regarding that, but I believe it was just due to potentially the age of the audience yeah. that may have got their hands on it. But yeah, I think yeah. that most kind of older children, young teens would be able to, young teens and above would be able to handle that. But say mm. like, I actively, this is the second time for me reading this book and I cried again and I knew what was going to happen and I cried because it's very emotionally rich. So there may be maybe slight grounds. I'm glad that yeah. nothing Yeah, that makes uh, okay. That makes more sense. It was more who it was targeted at rather than the content itself of the book. That makes more sense. Yeah. Okay, so that's cleared that up. All right. Well, since I'm talking, sorry, I'll carry on. Uh, <laughs> no, I quite. I actually, I actually really enjoyed, really enjoyed the book overall. I mean, the idea of death as a, a narrator, I'm I'm used to because I'm a big Pratchett fan. So death narrating is just, you know, is something I'm used to. But it was, a, it, it was very, it was very, very different uh, to sort of other depictions of death. And I think that was a brilliant little twist 
that it's the 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 way death was portrayed and the fact that death because obviously death is eternal he doesn't see time he, he if you read it it describes everything in colors different time periods are actually in different colors that's how he differentiates time periods i thought that was i thought that was actually quite a, a genius stroke that you know in the the early part of Liesel's life is white to represent the um the coldness uh of her existence at that time the fact that uh the the events that happened and the, obviously the snow because of the time of year it was and then other t- you know i'm not getting too spoiler at this point but color very much comes in as death's vocab i did get a, a little not bored is the wrong word got a little bit sort of frustrated that the middle bit seemed to go a little slowly i mean i understand it was sort of very much character building and i understand because it was getting you to a point where you knew all the ins and outs of certain characters ready for the end of the book so that the ending would hit you the way it did but it was sometimes i was just like okay they're doing this they've done it okay i'm can we move on no no they're still doing it can we can we can we get on to the next bit please you know for me it just it felt a bit slow paced in certain bits but overall it sort of worked because then that just means you understood the characters it means you've spent so much time with the characters and because you've spent so much time with them the ending hits the way it does because you've because of the amount of sort of not quite non-essential stuff but life things because strangely life isn't about you know massive events all the time you know life is about day to day and so spending the day to day every so often with these characters you really feel like you've lived with them and then of course the ending happens and you and that's why it smacked you in the face so whilst as i say i wasn't bored in the middle but it it paced a bit slowly for my liking but i know there was a, a need for it so that's what I'm trying to say. I wasn't bored because I know there was a need for it. It was just that sort of, you know what I mean? I was like, I know what I know what you're doing, but come on. But it, but it was all necessary because it, it, you know, it was re- and it was really, really, really well written because all the characters were so well defined. You knew all the characters inside and out, you, and you knew how people had how the characters would react in certain instances. It was just. Yeah, it was just overall quite a, a, not quite. It was actually overall a really, really good book. I want to just sort of touch on what you said, Burns, about it being aimed at young adults. Um, given our previous review of the Shadow Man, I think this one is far more catered and well written towards the audience it aims at, and it's far more hard hitting. Even to the point now where we're all close to in or over 30. And it still hits us really fucking hard. And that's the sign of a fucking a great author. It transcends the market in which it's meant to be aimed at. Um, for me, it was it was flawless. I can't pick fault at it. It fucking it's one of two books that I couldn't put down in the past 10 years 
And it's for me to say that, like, that's a massive thing because I'm not a big reader. <laughs> I just don't bother. I'd rather piss off about my fucking PlayStation or some shit. I'd rather than read a book. But this fucking really hit home. And it's one of, I mentioned this before um, in a private conversation, but I've only cried properly at two mediums outside of music. One of them was The Gladiator. The other one was this book. And it, it's, it speaks volumes when it hits so deeply and emotionally. But yeah, for me, flawless. Fucking well-written, Mark. Incredible. So, I think as a jumping-off point, I want to say I really struggled to actually get into the book. Then, in a private conversation, Strawn said, I've been listening to it on Audible. Try that. You might enjoy it more. So I went to Audible and I listened to it and I immediately fell back in love with it. Uh, the beginning is reading it. I think it's a bit jarring because it's a little bit, I don't want to say higgledy pig. You're not sure how to interpret how the words are written. So hearing someone say it and talk it out, you get that cadence and you get that natural rhythm for it and it makes so much more sense. So I didn't understand the narrator, the death from reading it, but listening to the guy on Audible who does a fantastic job. And this is an audio, an Audible promo. However, if you'd like to sponsor this Audible, please come in. Um, you know, he does an excellent job in making, making death come alive, which is an odd paradigm. Um, my general opinion on the book um, before we, you know, give a final verdict, is it's close to flawless for me. I have a couple of minor niggles, which are very spoilery, so I can't talk about them now. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I ignored those niggles because the rest of it was so good. Uh, bouncing off the back of what you just said there, Kimbo, I, I'm, I consider myself very lucky because the first time I read this, I, I physically read a paperback version of it. Um, I, I didn't have the issue. Um, I took to that book immediately and I think I read it in like two days. I couldn't put the fucker down. So when we, I knew that we were going to be doing Down to Book and we were going to be picking a book, it immediately came to me. It's 560 pages. It's a short story and it kind of grabs you quite quickly. On this read through, I also did the Audible version it's narrated by a guy called Alan Cordiner. And I just want to say that Alan Cordiner's interpretation of the text is absolutely incredible. It's beautiful and it's nuanced. And death comes across as charming and human. And because death is so charming and so charismatic and so deeply in love with these humans you can't help but immediately fall in love with the book and fall in love with the characters and get completely carried away by it um i but i honestly think it's a perfect book i don't have any issues with it myself um I'm not going to say like it's it's probably got flaws, but for me personally, it was just perfect. I think it was exactly the right length. I think the character development 
was paced in a way that made the payoff when certain things occurred in the story um, hit in exactly the right way. And it's just, it's incredibly well written. It's why I think that the, the Prince Award thing it being given on the basis of the quality of writing, it's clearly deserved it because the quality of the writing in that book is absolutely extraordinary. It's just so well textured and the characters are so well developed that you fall in love with them all and you get attached to them all and you know that it's not going to end well because it's 1939 and Nazi Germany and you know that you're probably going to end up crying and then even when you do you're still sort of surprised and your heart breaks a bit but you're so glad that you got to know the characters to start with that the heartbreak is almost worth it I just think it's it's a genuinely exceptional piece of writing and I will inevitably read that again or listen to that again because it it gave more on the second read through. I enjoyed it more the second time than I did the first and I fell in love with it immediately the first time round. Johnson. I was about to say then, um, am I the only one who actually read it then, but then you sort of came along because I've, I've tried audible I, tr- I genuinely tried audible and it was just I, cu- I couldn't do it because i just realized i just wasn't taking it in and i was like well that's doing this book a disservice i don't want to have missed something just because i wasn't just because the system isn't for me so i actually sat down and actually read the book and uh yeah, I I really loved in the book his his little there's little drawings every so often. I'm not getting spoilery here, but there's there's bits in the book where they talk about things that are drawn or things that are hand done, and the authors actually put little pictures in there of it. So as you're getting the character's experience of the thing, you're not just reading it; you're getting the character's experience of it as well. Like there's bits where there's bits where a character write. Um, this isn't a spoiler because it's he. There's a character in it that d- writes a story uh, on some paper they've sort of scrounged, and he's put little illustrations to help one of the characters understand the book, the, the, his little story. And I love his little drawer. <laughs> I love that character's drawings. And so I think there's something for me that there would have been something missing if I'd just done Audible because you'd miss that little little thing but again that's my own personal preference so that's that's just me me not able to to get on audible not as a so it's one of those i've now tried it and i know it's not for me but it doesn't mean it's not for everyone so if you've struggled to get into reading i actually have been converted a bit and say yeah try it because at least you're getting something out of it yeah, I mean, absolutely. Having a say, like, I've both physically sat down with the paperback and read it and seen all the kind of little hand-drawn and handwritten parts. And that was ex- that was just a wonderful overall experience. It's a beautifully put-together physical book. Um, but the, I, don't, I don't feel like I missed out on anything from the Audible experience itself, because I think that Alan Corrin's interpretation of the text... 
and particularly the way he presents death. He's sort of not quite camp, but quintessentially British. And it just, it ticked all the boxes for me when you hear death is this charming, terribly British individual. And he's just got such a lovely tone and cadence and the emphasis. I'm not going to get into it now because we've already established we'll be going into a spoiler heavy section after this initial part. Uh, It's the way that he says a specific word and the voice in his throat catches when he says it. Um, My soul fell out of my body because it just broke my heart. So I think there's there's definitely something to be said. I'm an avid reader anyway, whether that's sitting down with the paperback or, you know, my walk to and from work or my breaks, always have my headphones in and I'm listening to a book. There's always a book on the go in some format. So I would say to the listeners at home, however you do look to engage with this particular book, I cannot recommend strongly enough that you do take the time. It's 560 pages if you get a copy of it physically. It's a matter of like, it's less, I think it's less than 20 hours on Audible. I think it was like 18 hours on Audible. That's not a lot of time. And the experience that you get for such a small text, it's just, it's priceless. It's worth it. Do it. However you do it, just do it because I can guarantee you that you will walk away from having experienced this book feeling glad that you did. So, gentlemen, Zalkelms, what were your recommendations? Is this a must-read, a session, or a break book? Yeah, it's just a must-read. You've got to get to it at some point in your life. And I know people say, oh, you don't have to read any books, but I think this is one of them. I'd say, actually, if you're going to sit down and try something, yeah, it's a must-read. Yeah, again, uh, must-read. Um, I can't recommend this book enough, and I'm not a big reader. It's just something that I wouldn't have read it if you hadn't recommended it to me. And we hadn't done this podcast, I would never have read it or watched the film or anything like that, because just... On, on the book cover, like never did a book by its cover. It's a prime example. Look at the cover of the book. I'd never read it. Never thought about reading it. Never wanted to. Having read it now, Jesus Christ, my life is all the better for it. But yeah, must read. So, I feel like I'm cheating the rules here. I, The book itself is must read. Like, you have to read the book. However... I think it's better read over sessions than all in one slog. I think sometimes it gets a little heavy with the subject matter, but being able to go, it's enough for me for one day, and break it up into three or four, you know, chunks. Like Nat said, it was it was eighteen hours or something like that on Audible. Three, four, five chunks of listening to a few, listening to this wonderful or reading this wonderful experience. I think makes it more enjoyable because of the subject matter. However, the book itself is a must-read book. Um, I think it's obvious that I'm going to say it's a must-read, although I do actually agree with Kimbo. I think there are aspects of the story, like plot points and where certain things occur, 
um, for me, I say this, this was the second time of tackling this book and I was no better emotionally prepared for it. Having already read it and know what was coming, there were parts where I got to it and X had occurred and I was just emotionally drained for the evening and was like, this is where I stop. I'm going to have a little tactical cry. I'm going to have a cup of tea and a cigarette and then I'll pick this up again tomorrow when I'm feeling a little bit more emotionally prepared to carry on because I, I now know where we're leading up to. Um, but it's absolutely a must read. Um, I, I'd say that you could easily, if you if you get into it when you initially start reading it, realistically you you will just be grabbed so hard by it that you could easily do it in a couple of sittings it's 18 hours if you've got a day off and you're not feeling very well you could sit in bed and do that whole book in one day easily absolutely easily there is something to be said about breaking it up so that you get kind of bites and you can recover and then hit the next wave and then recover again but absolutely definite must read So at that point, ladies and gentlemen at home, I do believe that we're about to hit spoiler territory. You have been warned. If you have not read the book and you intend to do so, stop now and come back and join us. Kimbo. If you are still here following that warning, I would like to welcome you to the danger zone. Oh. Well, get out. So you've been fair warned, ladies and gents. Um, we are hitting Spoilerville population, us four, and you if you've not stopped. I would strongly recommend do not continue listening if you have any intention of reading this book. Yeah. Go into it as blind as possible because it's not going to hit the same way if you're prepared. So go away, come back, come back to us once you've read it and then pick up the journey. So guys, leave, get out now. What an emotional vaction that was. Hmm. Yeah, you're an arsehole for recommending it. I didn't like feeling feelings. Um, I take it. I was completely correct, and everybody cried. <laughs> yeah. The most, the most concerning thing is, outside of a comedy film, I've never felt on death's side. Apart <laughs> from Bill and Ted, fucking Muppets Christmas Carol, it's a fucking ghost of Christmas yet to come. Fucking, um, oh, the fucking Cartoon Network show where it's Bill and Mandy, whoever the fuck it is. From mm. Adventures of Billy and Mandy. There yeah, go. there we go. <laughs> and Satan from Cow and Chicken. Outside of those, I've never agreed with death. <laughs> what, about, what about him from Powerpuff Girls? He was weird. That made me confused as a child, and I didn't. I wasn't quite ready for that yet. He seems your type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think too, during, too masculine. During the. <laughs> During the um, oh, what the Final Destination films, I was on Death Side for that. But yeah, outside of this book, I've never felt on Death Side outside of a comedy aspect. This book, I was all in with Death. I was like, 
that motherfucker gets the human condition. And he's so beautifully articulate in what he says and how he comes across and how he says things. He or she, like, not stereotyping, but yeah. Fuck that book. Kimbo. Before we get into our positive spoilers, I kind of mentioned I had a couple of niggles and I feel like people are going to dislike them. So can I get my couple of niggles out of the way and then I can go back to being a big fan? <laughs> okay. So niggle number one, possibly a slightly less controversial one. I have an issue with the introduction of the neighbour whose name I've completely fucking forgotten. Her son coming back and dying, and I think it's literally within an hour of audible listening. It feels a little bit like we needed we needed something for Frau Dilla to do. We brought her son back to give Frau Dilla some purpose and also affect Frau Dilla's character, and then we killed her son. Just felt like they used the son as a plot point, and then when his plot point was served, he was removed. The other niggle, I can already feel Matt going to kick off about this one. I didn't get Max. I didn't get... I had no attachment to Max whatsoever. I understood his his purpose, and he made me like Liesl more. Max, on his own, didn't emotionally affect me in any way. Well, you're wrong. I mean, you're wronger than a wrong thing that's wrong. And you've literally killed Strawn. But <laughs> you're entitled to your wrong opinion. I mean, I can, I can see why... That might be the case. For me, I, I was in love with Max. I think Max and Liesl's relationship is absolutely beautiful. I think Max as a character, as this oppressed and terrified young Jew in the midst of the, the worst part of history for people of his faith, is just, it's so delicately handled the kind of the fear and the love and Papa's relationship with his father and the way it ties that part of Papa's life into the current story and the fact that he does what he does for Max as the son of the guy that he was in the the first war with does a lot to help solidify Hans Huberman as a character because that that was a massive risk, and then when he put like leaves, gives the bread later, and then gets punished for it, you know that it's part of who he fundamentally is as a person. Because you've seen what he's prepared to do for Max, you also get to see a different side of Rosa because of Max, and you get that emo- emotional turmoil with Liesel because of Max. I think Max also as well as a character I think he's his kind of his fever dreams and his fears and his anxieties and his love for that family 
is very emotional. I, I fell in love with Max and his hair like feathers. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite actually enjoyed the character himself. It was Max was Max was actually quite quite cool and did did quite a lot just to get you on side of this is just a person suffering through quite a horrible time and you act, I I quite actually felt for him and it was and yeah the bit where the um Gestapo or SS officers turn up um to well to check if the the houses are good enough for bomb shelters and just feeling that panic of oh crap they are going to find him this is going to be the bit and and also when the the beautiful bit well I'll explain stop start again the beauty comes in a moment the bit where he uh, gets quite ill due to the damp living conditions he's in and then the beautiful scene where um mama comes comes into school to let um Liesl know that he's awake and safe and she does it by you know berating her for losing her comb and you ev ev you know Liesl knows and um mama knows that's not what they're talking about because she said, you know, if if he wakes up, come tell me off in front of people, and and, and I'll know. And oh, yeah, that beautiful moment, knowing that Max is alive and well, because I had a horrible feel. I had, it was gripping me when, especially when the mum and the dad are talking about what are we going to do with the body, and you're like, oh crap, yeah, you you bastard, you're going to kill this guy. And a bit to the story of trying to live with the fact that they've had to dispose of a body, and then he wakes up, and it's like, oh yes. So I I really enjoyed him as a character, and as well as his plot points, it, just the fact that his beautiful story about um, the the people he's woken up to, uh, where and he, and he says the 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 happiest faces scene is was basically the I can't remember the exact wording. But when he wakes up to Liesl, when he's safe, and he writes a story about it. The standover man. Standover man, that's it, yeah. So in conclusion, you, you're wrong, Kimbo. But it's your, it's your right to be wrong. <laughs> so I would like to point out the majority of the praise that both of you have thrown for Max was his value as a plot point. How he enhanced Hans, how he enhanced Rosa, how he enhanced Liesl. Which, yes, he was an excellent plot point. As a character, I felt less for him than I felt for, let's say, Tommy. Or Ilse Herman. I felt more sorry for little Tommy Muller and his hard of hearing than I felt for Max. I felt the only reason I felt sorry for Max is the same reason I felt sorry for every Jew that was even briefly mentioned in that story. It's World War Two and Hitler's a dick. <laughs> I was about to say then, 
Yeah. I love that a... summary of World yeah. War Two. <laughs> it's World War Two. Hitler's a dick. The most TLDR version of World War Two ever, but alarmingly accurate. Yeah. But, but I, I do. I sorry. Go on. Going to say, moving on from Max, what did we feel about other characters? Do we have a favourite? Was there anything that particularly stood out to you guys? So I know for me, it was sort of, I, I was desperately in love with Rudy. And when death says Rudy's name, when Rudy passes away at the end, and it, you hear his voice catch when he says it, it just goes, oh, Jesus, Rudy. And then, like, the emotion in his voice when that boy passes away. And you're so invested in this little Jesse Owens wannabe that you're deeply shattered to the very core. Like, this is a boy that never gets a chance to kiss Liesl. He's jumped into a river to save a book for her and covered himself in charcoal because he was determined he was going to be Jesse Owens and the next Olympic athlete. And he takes beatings from the fucking shitty boys in the, um, the well, the, the young Nazi party that he's coerced into and the way he handles his papa being taken away. And I think considering he's a secondary character, he's incredible and so well-written. And I think the way that death speaks about Rudy gives him even more weight. And Rudy, without death giving you cues that he is deeply important and doesn't deserve the death that he gets, you are you were already there, really. And death just makes you go, oh, shit, no, not, not Rudy. I'm not ready for this. I burst into tears both times that Rudy died. I will never be emotionally ready for Rudy dying. I could read this book a hundred more times and lose my utter shit because Rudy is beautiful. Rudy Steiner is the best human that's ever been alive, either physically or in words. Rudy Steiner is my reason for loving this book. His silly Jesse Owens thing. Every time he asks for a kiss from Liesl, him eventually realising he's in fucking love with Liesl, so he stops asking for a kiss for being a good guy. The scene... The scene... The the passage when they're in his father's shop, when his father's been sent to war with the mannequins... Rudy breaks my heart and makes me fall in love with the human race, that he is so perfect. His death is the most heartbreaking moment in this whole book by a country mile. And it's so poetically just that he has given up his whole bed for his little sister and is cut cradling her so she feels safe as they both die. I'll talk about other characters because otherwise I'll start crying about Rudy again. Um, Liesl took me a little bit to to enjoy Um, I think because Rudy's very relatable Rudy's a cheeky little scamp anyone can love a scamp Liesl at the start is because of how the book starts very cold, very distant very hard to engage with so 
So hearing Def talk about Liesl at the beginning, it just takes you a little bit to warm to her. And Rudy is your gateway into warming to her for me. Between Rudy and the other best character in the book, Hans Huberman. I got I cried once and I got choked up when Hans got sent to war before it kind of got locked out and got the easy thing. It was less easy than the other easy thing, but whatever. Hans is everything a good father should be. He's supportive. He's he's probably a little bit emotionally unstable, but not in a in an aggressive, violent way. He loves his wife, he loves his children, even if they don't show it in the most traditional sense. Um, Rose is very well written she's a very you know you can you can picture her you know what she looks like you know what she's like to be around um, Max is well written there's no issue my issue with Max is the fact that I, I didn't particularly engage with him as a character but that isn't because of how he's written because you all got there with him um, it, it was just a personal thing for me and then even like little characters come in for a little bit. Like I've mentioned Tommy Moore. I, I liked Tommy. He was great comic relief when he came in. The fact he couldn't hear people. And again, he every character served two purposes. One as a character and two as a plot point. So the the exquisiteness of Tommy as a character was one, getting over Liesel as a complete and utter badass. And two for getting over Rudy as a badass, how Liesel for kicking shit for Tommy Muller and Rudy for defending little Tommy's honor because Tommy can't hear you can't keep in rhythm with a stupid march. It's um Elsa Herman's the other one that not mentioned at the beginning. Um I think she's the most interesting character in the whole book because she's not particularly easy to tune into but at the same time her effect on Liesl and in essence she's the reason Liesl grows up between her and her library when when she's first mentioned I'm like oh she's just going to be a little bit part character we're not going to really deal with her much and then Towards the end, when she gives Liesl the book that Liesl writes, you know, the whole book thief story in, you've gone on a, a small but beautiful trip of it. And yeah, in, to compare the Shadow Man with the book thief character wise, I think, whereas they're both beautifully written characters. However, the Shadow Man relied heavily on its characters to tell the story. The book thief had a good story, and then the characters enhanced it to be a great book. Yeah, agree. Um, I'm not sure if I've got an actual favourite. I think... To be perfectly honest, I think my favourite character is the narrator, is Death, just because of how how much you can actually see sort of grows. It becomes a, that little bit more human because of 
of because of the tragedies in this you know little human's life yeah he's this i love the fact that at first it starts with death um taking liesel's brother but he can't there's something about liesel that he just can't walk away he's like right i've got my job i should actually i'm just going to hang around a bit i want to see where this goes sort of it starts off with death as that little sort of curious creature going what are what are these creatures up to and then he notices one and goes oh yeah i'll have a i'll i'll come check back on you in a bit sort of thing and then over time when he he keeps coming back like the bit where he he picks up the crashed english airman and he knows he's risking being seen but he doesn't care he's just like no i i, I sort of like need i don't know i need to see how liesel is coping with this i need to see how she's doing and he's carrying the airman and sort of you know him basically sliding through between the people so he can get out and take the person and i think yeah he's his growth is brilliant, especially the very last words in the book, which come from him, where he says, I am haunted by humans. And it's just perfect little cherry on top of the cake. And it's just like, yes, that was that was absolutely the perfect way to end that. And because he's I love the fact that there's one bit where he's basically getting stick off his boss for not being quick enough during uh, air raids. When he's picking, like, and during the battles, he's having to pick hundreds of people up at a time. And he's saying, you know, he keeps mentioning that the guy upstairs is is a bit unhappy with the speed he goes. And it's like, well, I've got hundreds of people to carry at once. I love the fact that there's that little injection of humanity into him, even when he's not around Liesel. The fact that he's got a boss, the the guy upstairs controlling everything is, you know, he's. And I love the fact that he doesn't say God. He leaves it open to whatever you fancy, because you've anthropomorphized death, for Christ's sake. So, And I love the fact that it's, well, it's the, the higher being is whatever you would imagine a higher being that can control death is. So he doesn't inject any sort of personal beliefs and allows you that your own injection of what could put what the possibilities could be i agree with everyone else's points the character like rudy i think rudy is the best human character definitely rudy's absolutely absolutely brilliant and uh, i quite yeah i quite enjoyed at least as a person and i think because you know she wrote because it sort of says at the death sort of gives up spoiler at the start where he says Basically, he says a bit of spoiler. Um, she's 14 years old and writing a book. So, and then it cuts back to her childhood again. And you're like, right, so you know she learns to read and you know she learns so well that she can actually write a book as well. And so her struggling through and you're like, oh, I know it turns out fine, but, oh, you know. And I quite liked her little bits of how she how she develops writing and the fact that she kicks the crap out of two older boys because they keep mocking her for not being able to read just yet. Uh, what, what was this? Head, wasn't headline of one of them? It's, a, it's like Liesel becomes the heavyweight champion of the playground. Uh, I, but yeah, I think for me, death is the main is 
the best character for me. I think for me, I agree with you, uh, Johnson. Uh, Death is my favourite character, but it's because of those. It's like how he articulates himself, and it's the very last words of the book where he says, "Humans will always haunt me," and it's that nice role reversal where it's humans fear death, but death is haunted by humans, and I think that was like a beautiful total like 180 on the whole idea um i don't have a favorite character outside of death but i do have favorite passages in the book so it was like little bits that i loved like not so much love but that stuck out to me and there's bits where it's like they talk about hitler and it goes there was a man who decided to comb his hair differently and wear a little like a little unique mustache and he said that one day he would rule the world and it, that, that very paragraph terrified me because it, it almost became true. And it's just, it's utterly breathtaking to think that such a, that's how we think of Hitler, just a, a guy with a weird haircut and a weird little moustache decided one day he would try and take over the world. And that's it. And then the bit where it's like, oh, he cheated me. He's about, I forget the character's name, but he's like, he cheated me twice. Once at this battle, once at this battle. And it's like, very few people treat, cheat death twice. That's Hans Huberman. Papa Hans cheats Huberman. death. Yeah, it's just like, wow. But yeah, no, death all the way. And the, like I said, little passages. Outside of that, I agree with you guys. It's character development and they enhance the story. Yeah, I... Uh... Just on the points of the the little passages, I absolutely love Max um, Max's story. Well, not quite story, but his little imagination when he has the boxing match against Hitler, and it's literally an an analogy for the rise of anti-Semitism and Nazism in Germany, where he's talking about hit you know this guy Hitler saying I'm going to fight fight this Jew. And, you know, he's battering him down, battering him down, just won't go down. And then Hitler calls on the people and and says, you know, are you going to let this non-German take us? Are you going to let this? And then all the people sort of join in. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful little story that Max created to, to sort of as an analogy for the rise of that sort of thing in Germany. I mean, in in terms of character work, it's it's very difficult to pick an outright favourite because there's so many of them that hit so hard and feel so real, like Rosa and her cardboard face teaching us how to swear in German like an absolute trooper. I think Rosa's journey from the start of the book to where she ends up at the end and this closeness that her and Liesl develop from being at complete opposite ends of the spectrum to each other and not getting along and Liesl almost resenting this woman to a degree to there being a point where Liesl wants to tell her she loves her and doesn't do it and then lives to regret it because when mama passes and she's you know, she says she loves you, it's too late because she's dead. And it's just devastating. 
the the emotional journeys that a lot of the characters go on are just so well pulled together and there's not like I think with Kimbo referring back to when we were talking about the Shadow Man arguably the Shadow Man characters were they were very well put together and they were believable and they felt like real people but my only critique of the Shadow Man was it felt like a lot of it was skeletal in places you could not honestly say anything of the kind regarding these these were fully fleshed out to the point where you could see the wrinkles on Rose's face you can smell the tobacco and the paint thinner on Popper you know you can you can feel the texture of Max's feathered hair and you can wipe the charcoal off Rudy (laughs) and the, the grief of Ilsa Herman is palpable she's a mother who's lost her son and doesn't know what to do with it and it's handled in such a beautiful and delicate way. It's not overhammed or overplayed. She's completely emotionally devastated. And the way that they depict Ilsa in this subdued, almost ghost-like manner, she just wafts through the house, barely there. She's almost stopped existing because her boy has gone. And Liesel gives her something back to make her come back to life to a degree. And I just think that the kind of the seven key characters that you see repeatedly, Liesel, Hans, Rosa, Max, Rudy and Ilsa, they are just so beautifully crafted and so fleshed out. And the way that they interact with each other enhances each one progressively more and more. They're so beautiful individually, and then they make each other extraordinary. Kimba. So I wanted to pick up kind of on what you just said about Ilsa Herman. Um, I think how this book uses imagery to depict certain things is beautiful. Um, they talk, so Ilsa Herman is the one I'm going to pick back. When she's in the house, and whilst Liesel comes and visits, she's in her robe. And like you said, she, she's a ghost. She's a ghost in her own home. But then she goes she goes out into the street to give Liesel a book. And she's got porcelain skin and wearing a yellow dress. And, you know, it's a bright colour. She, she's come to life to give Liesel this book that saves Liesel's life, in essence. Um, the other examples are... that. You know, immediately spring to mind is when they talk about uh, when Hans gets sent to the war and uh, Rosa is sat on the end of the bed with the accordion and she says that Rosa's face starts to crack. And I'm like, it's the author's use of imagery on top of the excellently fleshed out characters makes the book um, incredible, you know the emotion in the book is you can feel the emotion at every point you can, you don't have to, you know, fake it till you make it, you can feel the sadness you can feel the joys you can feel the odd teenage sexual tension between Rudy and Liesel you know, it's all there um I'm going to try and piggyback us away from characters because I am the king of the segue. 
and I'm not even going to attempt to segue it because this book's too beautiful for me to throw puns in. Um, when we did the, uh, the the non-spoiler review, Johnson mentioned he kind of had an issue with pacing. I guess would be the, the best way of saying it. Um, I want to ask him more about it, so I want him to flesh it to flesh it out a bit more. Now we can spoil things. But before he does that, I want to talk about what I thought about the pacing. Because my thoughts are more important. My, my opinion on the pacing is it's, it, it, is, it is slow at points. However, it's slow in the way that this is going to get a little, a little R-rated. Sorry, viewers. When you're, when you're doing foreplay with your partner and it just gets... If you rush foreplay, sex is not great. But you slowly build up foreplay and sex is amazing. The book is... The book is foreplay. That whole middle filling of the book builds you up to that crescendo that the end is like a big finish. Innuendo's over, Johnson to you. Yeah, it does tend to finish on your face well. Um, no, I know, as I, as I did say before, I know exactly why it was done. Because, as I said, I completely agree with, because at the end, you know them, you know them so well, and you've practically lived with them for several years, that when it comes to the end, it, it breaks your heart when she's when she's scrambling through the, the rubble and she finally kisses Rudy, but Rudy's long gone, so he doesn't know about it. That break, that bit breaks you because you're like, because you've been through practically everything they've ever done together. And, you know, he constantly asks, oh, do I get me kiss now? And then, like Kimbo said, he does just, st- after after he realises it's not just, this sort of childhood friends is there's a bit more. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I better act a bit more, you know, a, a bit more lovingly rather than this thing. So he stops, hoping that he could, you know, he'll probably end up somewhere with her and dies before it's, the bomb gets him before the, the kiss does. But it, it's bits, yeah, it's it's bits like. Um, uh, like for instance, it's a, a perfect point for me is when they find they find a coin on the floor, and instead of robbing the local shop, they actually go in and buy a sweet, uh, a lollipop for the first time, and they're like, "Oh," co-. and she's like, "Well, what are you doing in here?" And they hand over the money so triumphantly and like, "Lollipop, please," and she's like, "Damn, right, fine, here you go, here's some lollies," and they go out and eat them. Then they go. Then the book takes a while, and they actually describing them trying to find more coins, and you know how every day they they walk the streets, constantly searching the ground. It's like, oh, can we find find those coins? Can we find those coins? And then, but that takes several paragraphs, and I'm like, it could have taken one, but because it takes so many, it shows 
that they've spent so many days together that it's like okay that they clearly have this connection and so you see the connection continues continue so well and then of course they find out the little trick about how to actually earn money and buy effect on a sweets that way i understand your point however i found those paragraphs more enjoyable to re- to or listen to because i don't read same thing. I found them more enjoyable than, for example, Hans's time away from the house. If if you're going to complain about anything, I thought that's where your complaints would be. Kind of Hans's time away, um, bits like that. The fact we had two very different scenes of them trying to steal, steal produce, but. I thought they were very vital for the story, to be honest. Uh, yeah, the only bit of part I felt maybe dragged was Hans's time away. And I don't think it ultimately added anything because I don't think that character dying affected Hans as he returned. And I think that may have been the intention. Um, Burns had a point, so I'm going to let her talk because I was going to segue a good way again. I mean, in terms of. Um... Liesel and Rudy searching for coins. I thought it was a great way of illustrating not only the passage of time and the fact that they'd become basically literally thick as thieves, but it also led into this segue of them being desperately hungry. That you, you start to become aware of how desperate the situation has become on Himmel Street for those individuals that, you know, food is barely there at this point and finding that coin is such a glorious moment for them that you've you've got this surge of kind of like oh yes fantastic they've got this and then they fixate on maybe they'll be lucky again and it's this recurring disappointment and your heart breaks for them a little bit but they stick together and the looking for the coin naturally leads them into the joining up with the boys and stealing the produce and that aspect of the story so I think like I appreciate that there are parts of the story that are a little slower paced and there are parts that are almost kind of repeated with slight variations but for me they were less of a pacing issue per se but more a really intelligent way of illustrating that life was on a day-to-day basis, repeatedly, incredibly difficult and cold and hungry and scary for these kids. Like They genuinely are afraid and famished and every day is starting to feel and look the same in a very scary time to be in that city in Germany. Yeah, I, I want to, as I said, reiterate the fact that, I, as I say, I understand exactly how important all the scenes were, because it does mean the the air raid at the end does does hit like a bomb, really. It you know you get hit as hard as Liesel does. That's sort of the point. As I say, it was just that sort of. Sometimes for me, I was just like, it weirdly, it was just like, okay. Come on, I know. Come on, 
ah, there we go. It wasn't a bad thing because it you it draw because it you draw in on and getting to the end, you realise we needed we did need them. We needed them to be there so that so that you've been pretty much you've been through every single event they've done, and you also realise that you know sometimes during the war life was still mundane. You know it wasn't all. It wasn't all air raids and the SS turning up and hiding Jews. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't one big film constantly. There were most days, uh, go to work, earn your money, come home, have what little food you're allowed, go to bed, rinse, repeat. And you needed to get that sense that that's what they're living through so that when the film-like events, I don't know why I'm using air quotes with my fingers, the listeners can't see that, but when they their life events do happen, they happen harder because you've been with them during the quote unquote normal boring bits. So it really does slap you in the face, sort of go, oh crap, that that is completely out of out of normality for them. Yeah, I mean, I say I think the only difference between yourself and Ella, I appreciate you saying that you understand the importance of those elements is that for me, it never registered at any point as being slow-paced and then later on going, oh, actually, we needed that. I think that that would be the only distinction between us. At some point, you were waiting to get to the next bit and then reflecting and going, oh, it was so important that that bit was there. Whereas for myself, at least, it never twigged. I'd the pacing for me that even when it it slowed there was still such a lovely steady flow taking you on I never felt jarred by it or bored by it or like I'd like to get to the next bit I I just enjoyed the flow speaking of bored I'm bored of this in this conversation let's move to something I'm interested in I want to talk about what we think happened between death meeting Liesl the second time and death meeting Liesl the third time. Because we get we get we get segments of information. We know she lives in Sydney now, which kind of alluded to very craftily in the spoiler free section, Burns, you you little minx. Um we also <laughs> we also got um the fact she had children and grandchildren. The number was revealed. I, I don't retain information um and she had a husband and then more immediately we know ilza herman takes her and she's reunited with max but between that's all we that's pretty much all we get between meeting two and meeting three what i like to think happened because I want, I want to, I want to do what I think first, and then hear your probably better interpretations. I think that she stayed in Mulking until she was early twenties. She got a good education, maybe actually became an author at an event, met her future husband who is not Max, because I am determined it is not Max. It's creepy. There's eight years between them. I was scared it was going to get creepy at a point. 
and they live wherever they live, probably somewhere in Europe. And then they retire to Australia. And she lives out the final, the, her retirement years in Australia, in bloody good Sydney. But what do you guys think happens between meeting two and meeting three? Well, I reckon, I, yeah, I'm with you on the fact that her husband isn't Max. Uh, not just for the not just for the creepiness, but I do also. It, I mean, it is true. It would be weird him having essentially grown up with her since she was very very young, to when she suddenly turns of legal age, suddenly going, "Oh, you're legal now." That would be a bit weird. But I don't think that's for me. I don't think that's Max. I think he he sees him more like he s- describes in the book the s- standing over man or. However, it was described. He sees her more as a sorry Burns. What was it called? Standover man. Standover man. Thank you. Yeah, he sees her more as that sort of savior. Sort of oh, you know, she sat by my bed. She read to me. She's she's just an incredibly good friend. And he was just and like like the bit when they're they're liberated, you know, and the. The, the Jews are finally liberated and he, he they meet up and it's more sort of a two friends having been away rather than future couple. I'm with you on that. All right, I personally I personally think she she moved as soon as she was of legal age, personally for me, I think she moved out to Australia and led her life that way. Because her the only thing for me that if that would have kept her there would have been family but you know the the bomb took care of that she literally had no one she was pretty much the only survivor of himmel street so she literally had no one other than the mayor and the mayor's wife who eventually take her in because she's literally got no one else she can't go to the neighbors or whatever so i reckon as soon as that and i i agree with you i reckon she became an author as well because because she wrote that book in the basement and death loved it so much i do think she carried that sort of on and became became an author and and again so that at this point events are similar to yours that she meets her husband that's future husband somewhere like a convention or at the publishers or whatever yeah and they grow up but for me i reckon she moved to australia fairly quickly after the war because it's like, well, the only thing that would have kept me here would have been Rudy, Mama, Papa, you know, you, the Hoobermans. And unfortunately, they're gone and she might have had so much bad memory that, yeah. So for me, I, for me, I, I agree with your sort of thing. The only difference is at which point they go to Australia for me. But I think the same events would have happened just for me. They would have happened mostly in Australia rather than the end. But that's just... I think because there's so little there, it does allow you to think on her life your own. So none of us, I, I think, can be wrong because all possibilities make sense. Like Kimbo saying she stayed in Germany to become an author and then retired does make sense for her. She learned to read and write in German. She would have written books in German, stayed there. And then once she realized, oh, my life's coming to, towards the end she retires out in a sun a sun-kissed paradise essentially that makes sense 
mind makes sense because she probably wants to get away from all this pain because she she had a terrible time the only things that were nice were these lovely people that are now dead so it still fits so i mean i am genuine you are right kimba i'm genuinely interested now to see what everyone else thinks happened to her i think that's the beauty of something like this you can have any interpretation any of them can be right and i've always been one to just let the reader decide or the listener decide or however it be I don't want to divulge my belief because I've always been rather wanting to stick to your own interpretation. Because it's play the game. No, because I don't. There's no right or wrong. Boo! Boo to you, sir. (laughs) It's like it's like song lyrics. There's always you have you have your own meaning. Life has its own meaning. This book, you have your own interpretation. Take from it what you will, folks, and enjoy it for what it is. Whatever you think happens, you're not wrong. Well, I'm not going to cop out for you, Kimbo. I've got you, boo. Um, for me, you're not going to you're not going to like the way I want what happens next to play out. But suck it. It's what I would like to think happens. I think Liesl she gets taken in by uh, the Hermans. They're well to do. They'll still have money. They'll educate her well. I think you bang on with that. I think she gets a good education. I think she writes. I think she spends a lot of years in Germany and then travels. And I think later in life, she meets Max again. And they're older. And they get together. And then they retire together in Australia. Because it's only an eight-year gap. And you've got to think, that's not, that's not a huge gap. I've known couples that have got a bigger age gap than that. When you get older, it's less of an issue. You got to think he'd have been, he was a young man, but she was a, she was a young teenager and they went through a lot. And I think, you know, they both separated off and they'll have lived their separate lives. And then they find each other in later years and they get married and they have a few kids and they go and they retire in Australia. And I think that would be, a beautiful ending for them both to have both gone through so much and his adoration for that girl and how she saved his life that you know she saved his life and he was one of the few things that she still had to hold on to that brought her joy in that awful time of her life she lost so many people she loved And yet she still looked for Max in the crowds. And I think, you know, 30-year-old Liesl on her travels, bumping into a knocking 40-year-old Max, something could happen there. And that would have been a beautiful end to that story. And that's what I'd like to happen. But to each their own. So in terms of the story itself, were there any moments for you guys that really stuck out? Um, Any particular sequences or scenes, events that really stuck with you that were particularly memorable? So unsurprisingly, most of mine are Rudy Steiner related. The Jesse Owens scene is iconic. It is iconic. This kid painting himself in charcoal 
and his dad walking down the street to collect him. And he goes, Dad, I want to be more like Jesse Owens. And he's like, you should not want to be like that because it's Nazi Germany. You shouldn't want to fucking do blackface. Perfect. Perfect combination of comedy whilst expressing how dire and serious this shitty situation is. Also, Rudy, uh, the the scene where he dives in to save the book, um, that's kind of how much he loved Liesl. He, he was literally just chastising her for stealing the book and not food. And then he dives in to save the book anyway. Perfect. The scene where he gives the British pilot the teddy, again, Rudy's borderline bipolar, I'm aware of this. But he's raging that his dad's not home. And his dad's been sent away because his dad saved him. Which, ironically, is what killed him. But, hey-ho, that's heavy. Um, But he gives this stranger this teddy as a last act of kind of, I'm sorry kind of a last act of peace. And finally, I touched on it earlier, but the scene in the in the tail in his dad's tailors, that that whole section of the book will I can play it like a little movie in my head and it's adorable. Like it's cute as shit. Away from Rudy it's not really a section, but no, it's a section, I guess. Liesel and Papa's Summer, where he gets his paint business going as well. Um, I can I can picture that really vividly, and it it's a throwaway section. I'm fully aware it's a throwaway section. However, it's so lovely. I just like lovely things. Yeah. I've you know, I've got a, a couple that sort of stick in memory. Like I've already mentioned it before, but it's the um it's the little boxing match that Max ha- plays out in his head. Uh to yeah. So if you've read if listeners you have read the book, it's a bit where he's Max is exercising constantly to keep his strength up. Um so he's he's healthy enough to, to get away if he needs to, and so he starts imagining having boxing matches against Adolf Hitler, where it's used beautifully as a, a metaphor for sort of the whole r- sort of rise in anti-Semitism and bigotry in Germany at the time. And strangely with the world as it is now, you can, uh, a lovely little sort of current reflection of creating an enemy to fight. But yeah, I quite, that quite, um, stuck stuck quite nicely for me and um sort of for me as well a bit that really stuck for me was um Liesel sort of realizing that she was actually allowed that she was actually allowed to go into the Herman's house that she'd been sneaking in all this time and it was the moment I can't exactly remember what it was I think it might have been might have been the cookies but the moment when she said when she realized oh i could have 
the dictionary. Yeah. Uh, she leaves a note and tells her that she'd seen her footprints in the uh, dust on the floor. So uh, Ilsa had been aware of Liesel's comings and goings for weeks when she leaves the note in the dictionary. That was it. Yeah, it was that bit where she realises uh, I was, uh, you know, the I was always welcoming. It's that heart heartwarming moment where she's she realised it was sort of a not quite her own prejudice, but her own arrogance that had kept her sneaking in. She's like, oh, well, I'm gonna, I want the books, I want to read, and I'm gonna do it my way, and sod her. And then after a bit, she realised after that incident, she realises. Even after everything I've said, she's still, her, you know, Herman's still very happy to have, to, to, to allow this to continue. And their relationship, as it grows and you find out that she did have a child herself and just, just the, the beautiful moments that they have and that she, that Liesl warms this very sad not sad as in modern parlance, but as in depressed woman. And the and but the reverse effect, the the sort of the the melting, the warming, and calming effect that Herman ha- Mrs. Herman has on Liesel, and she's she suddenly realizes that you know I may I may be rash in how I judge people. Uh, and the the scene where she's sat down and just talking about her her child and the fact that she used to read to her son until events took him away. But that's for me. This those two properly properly stick out. For me, there's the most hard hitting and memorable scene for me is just a bit right at the end, and it's the bit where the wooden spoon's on fire or it's smouldering. And the fucking broken accordion case. And it's just fucking heartbreaking. The rest of the whole book's fucking awesome, but obviously that that's the, the last fucking note that you get is the that is the last, when she's a child, and then when she's gets given the manuscript again, when she dies, and she puts her fingers to the, the faded ink. She goes, Oh, did you read it? He goes, Yes, many times. And it's fucking beautiful. It's fucking. It's such a well-written book. I think for me, the the book is just so beautifully written from the beginning to the very, very end. There are so many lines that you could quote, and sequences that are so vivid. That like as Kimbo said, they they play like movies in your head when you're reading it or when you're listening to it. Um, you, you're kind of spoilt for choice when somebody says, "Oh, what's your favourite part?" or "What stuck out for you?" because it's just that beautifully written all the way through that you're hard pressed to pick particularly perfect little nuggets of gold. I do think that um, Rosa sat with the accordion and basically sort of sleeping sat upright um I that broke my heart and I can see her sat on the end of the bed just slumped over this accordion unable to lie down and sleep because papa's not there and it's absolutely devastating 
Rudy jumping into the river after the book. But exactly what you said, Kimbo. It's it's this act of pure love, and you realise that his love for her is not just this silly childish thing. It's probably more complex than they'll ever be given credit for. And Max's fever dreams when he's unwell and all of the sequences with Liesel and Hans when Hans is teaching her how to read and write, giving her champagne and her not really understanding it. And there's just these beautiful little snapshots in time that weeks after you finish reading this book, if you try and think back on it, you'll have these perfect little Polaroids in your head. The the books, the, the three books that kind of death visits her for when she picks up the Gravedigger's Handbook at her brother's funeral and she's despairing and she's cold and she's broken and she's she's nine years old and it's just, it's so deeply sad and so beautifully written and then when she eventually gets hold of um, the shoulder shrug at the book burning, the book burning sequence on its own is just so desperately terrifying because you know that it happened. And yet it's written in such a way that it's semi-beautiful in its destruction. It makes me think of kind of the opening line of Fahrenheit 451. It was a, it was a pleasure to burn. You get that kind of feeling in your head where you see all these overzealous Nazis just finding joy in burning these books and this tiny child basically nearly setting herself on fire trying to save one is sort of beautiful and Papa helping her hide it in a very beautiful way. And when... The relationship between Ilsa and Liesel turns and Liesel's rage at Ilsa being cowardly in the way that she fires Mama and her going back and stealing the Whistler. The three instances where there is thievery of books do really stick out. And it just, it's a testament for the book that I can't pinpoint one specific moment that I think is the best and I think we all agree that the end like I am haunted by humans is so deeply profound and such a beautiful way to end this story it's just a it's a gift from beginning to end yeah I agree uh, and I would like to sort of move on to for, for me a, a point that sort of stuck out that I like to to move on with because I can't segue so I'm just asking my question is um, throughout the whole thing I can accept weirdly I can accept the book thievery really because at, at, at the time it's especially given the the fact like Burns says you know the, the book burnings and so on that she's essentially save, saving them I am interested to see people's opinions because they went out and stole a lot of other stuff. Like there was a lot of food thievery. Now I understand that there's a lot of, there was strangely a lot of sort of hunger going around because they had to ration and so on. But at the same time, whilst they were stealing to eat, well, it meant others went without food. 
I'm just interested to see what people, how sort of people responded to that because whilst I can understand completely, they're they're kids, uh, they're kids, they're very hungry and they they're quite cheeky and they're thinking, you know, we're we're eating and we're, we're growing, we need it, but there was still that bit at the back of me thinking, the cup, you know, a couple of apples and maybe a potato or two is fine. But the the huge bags of stuff they stole, I felt a bit, ooh, yeah. What about everyone else? I had no issue with it. I get why you'd have an issue with it, like if there's something a lot of stuff. But you've got to think like it was times were different back then. We we live now in an age of stupid abundance. We can have meat every day that we could want to. And that's something that in our lifetimes has changed. Like when we grew up, meat wasn't an option every day. It was an expensive thing that you sort of looked forward to. Um, imagine how they were back then. It's a very different time. We could, we'll never understand it. And we're living in different times now with the whole pandemic stuff, but we're not short of food. Not in our sort of society anyway. But yeah, I had no issue with it. I get why you would. Yeah. Not... yeah, there's no right or wrong. It was just that moment of, for me, of just like it, they're being cheeky, they're kids, and it it was a different time. But it was it was just in the back of my mind, like you're eating well tonight, but it means other people won't. And it was that sort of moment of, but it again, it's integral to integral to the story of character development and. And everything. It was just that one little sort of niggle in the back of my head. I mean, for me at least, um, there is definitely a moral ambiguity about the way that they pursue food. But on reflection, like the, the lollipops were bought with a coin that they found on the street. And other than the boy on the bike... And it's explicitly stated that the boy on the bike is taking food to the priest who is overweight and well fed, which gives you the immediate impression that somehow the priest is getting more than his fair share. There's never really a point where they're taking an excessive amount. They're not even necessarily eating particularly well. They're, they're getting occasional treats to fill very empty tummies, but they never push it too far. They're not kind of looting the whole shop. They're, they're, they're taking as many apples as they can fit in their pockets or, say, the basket for the overfed, potentially corrupt priest. And I think there's definitely moral ambiguity about the thievery of food, but given the context of the time and how even as kids, I never got the impression that it was sort of them being cheeky, naughty children, it was more a case of they were that desperately hungry that they were prepared to steal a couple of carrots and a couple of potatoes and maybe a ham. But they never took more than their fill and they shared it between the group of them. So everybody just got a little bit extra. So there was sort of that honour amongst thieves aspect that took the sting out of the moral ambiguity of the the thievery of the food. Uh, just on a quick side note, did 
could everyone else taste the horrible pea soup? Or was it just me? Disgusting. <laughs> Grim, mate. Grim. Um, I think this says a lot about my morals as a human being. I encouraged the stealing mentally in my head. I was rooting for him. Fuck the farmers. Like, these were starving kids. They deserve the food more. Um, I also enjoyed the aspect of it showed different it developed different sides of Liesl and Rudy's personality. Uh, the time they went and stole apples with the nice older boy that I can't remember the name of and he gives them a, a, do- a dozen apples um, to share between them and, they just, and then they're like, oh we can't take this home so they just eat a dozen apples and make themselves sick. I love it. Because that teaches them teamwork. Like they work as a team. They don't leave Rudy behind when he got snagged on the barbed wire. The guy threatened it, but he didn't follow through with it. Um, the time that uh, they stole from the guy on the bike, and instead of holding the food to themselves, they went and found that same guy who saved Rudy and split it between the group because they're like, "This is this might be our haul." But well, we wouldn't have dared have the bollocks to do this if you guys didn't help us the first time. I think it was it was really beautiful. It was a well developed scene section, whatever you want to call it. Um, the fourth time, the third time, sorry, that we don't mention as much because Liesl isn't involved, where Rudy tries to steal the potato from the shop. It's the biggest potato. And he manages to persuade the teacher to lie for him. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Absolutely. You're in a, sh- you're in a shitty yeah. situation. And you, find a, and you find a face you know and you're like, you, back me up and you pray they fucking do. We've all been in that situation. I love the, that Rudy had the bollocks to go and do it. And then the final time they stole, it was kind of the last time they even really stole anything, when they got a shitty end of the deal from stealing with the new guy, who was the one who eventually threw the book in the river and was a right prick. Like, it taught them a lesson that not everyone is to be trusted. And you better also remember, they didn't steal at every opportunity they had to steal. There was a point where Liesl said she looped to the kitchen when she went to steal a book when she was in the Herman household and decided against it because she thought it was a shitty thing to do. Like, the Hermans were well off. We knew constantly, we constantly got told the Hermans were well off. And she still thought, I can take these people's books from their dusty book room, but I can't take their food because that's fucking dodgy. Like, I think they had morals. They knew where their line was. At every point. I'm not going to let you respond to what I just said. I'm going to ask a final question. So my final question is. My favourite scene of the book. I didn't mention earlier. Is the, the kind of meet. Where Rudy runs his four races. And he deliberately gets disqualified on the fourth race. And. We never actually get told why. We kind of get led to believe it's because he's tired. Why do you think he got disqualified? 
I'm still supporting the theory it's because he didn't want to beat Jesse Owens' record of four. Oh, I like that. I'd not even thought of that. My belief has always been he knew that he wasn't going to do it. And he'd rather end with three because they were the only three he was allowed to run and attempt. I think he'd rather have been disqualified from the fourth than not met the standard of his idol. If he'd run the fourth race and he'd not won it, he'd have felt like he'd let Jesse Owens down. And he'd have let himself down and he'd he'd bragged about it. And I think that rather than risk losing face and feeling disappointed, he'd rather just not know. So he just bowed out because he could always say, I'd have won it if I'd not got disqualified. But if he'd run it, they'd have all known. And it just took that uh, element of risk away. He was unbeaten in all the races he was allowed to run. Yeah, weird. I hadn't actually. Kimbo does bring up a good point because I hadn't actually thought that about the fact that he loved Jesse Owen so much. So he he wanted, yeah, he he didn't want to sort of in his head put Jesse Owens to shame and say, well, you you did it, but so did a twelve year old boy. So you know, that's actually quite a clever one. I didn't think of that, but I'm I'm with uh, Burns on this one. Uh, that he did it out of a, a point of pride that he's, he can turn around and say, I was completely unbeaten and, well, I got I got disqualified. So I would have won, but I got disqualified. That's, you know, so he can walk with his head held high and everyone, when talking about it, everyone agrees that he's, he's clearly the best, you know, athlete that the town has. Look at him, he won three races back to back. And it was just unfortunate he got kicked out of the last one. So I think it for me it was a point of pride to say, Look, look how great I am and he just didn't he couldn't admit that he was he sort of overreached himself, that he was getting too knackered and he didn't want it for him it was that um moment from oh whatever Will Farrell's car racing one where he says, If you're not first, you're last. I think very much that's the attitude that he has in his head. That even if he'd come Talladega second, Nights. he thank you, Talladega Nights. Yeah, that even if he'd come second, for him it would have been a complete failure. So he'd rather come first in the three he could come first in, and then say, and then he can just basically go, not my fault. I couldn't have won that one. It's not my fault. So I think that's for me. But I quite like Kimbo. I genuinely, I think. I no, I genuinely didn't think about the Jesse Owens turn that he's like, well, if I only do three, that still means Jesse Owens is the best and he can still look up to Jesse. I like that. But I don't I don't think that was what he was doing, but that is a very good take and I didn't see that I didn't think of that at all. Just like the other two, Kimbo, I never thought of that as a fucking option. You've thrown a spare in the fucking works. Because I full-on went with the whole Ricky Bobby Talladega Nights thing, as Johnson did. If you're not first, you're last. Fuck. I'm going to have to reread the entire fucking book again now. 
I've just got over crying over it the first time. Fuck's sake. You're going to be so dehydrated. <laughs> just walk into it. Yeah, you're just going to walk into his room, find him curled up as a, a dried husk, just with a wet patch around his face where he's been bawling his eyes out. It's like, how did this happen? And then you see the book in his hand and go, oh. The final, final point I want to end on, what kind of bullshit athletics tournament starts with the 1,500 and ends with the 100 metres? That is not fair. You've run the longest one first. You're going to be fucking knackered. Yeah, no, it's not fair. But no, I, I, I'm going to expand on my point because I feel like people are going to be like, you're just saying that because you love Rudy. Yes, 95% of it is just because I love Rudy. But 5% of it is based in logic. If you have nothing to aspire to, you get lazy. Aspiring to beat Jesse Owens was his motivation. And he could use that in future athletics tournaments that he sadly didn't get to take part in because this book breaks my heart. But he still wanted to have something to aspire to, and Jesse Owens is always going to be that. I mean, I'd thought about Jesse Owens, but I've thought more in the sense of not wanting to let his idol down, not not wanting to beat him. So, yeah, that was a really solid point. Well done. Golf club. Golf. Well, that appears to bring us to an end of this glorious episode of Down to Book, ladies and gentlemen. If you'd like to get in touch... Provide us your own feedback. Tell us what you think. If we've got you to read the book, let us know what you thought of it. Contact us. It's namachildproductions at gmail.com. We'll be back again soon with another book. But for now, goodbye and enjoy your reading. Lovecraft. King. Gaiman. Oshkobla. I am haunted by humans. <laughs>